The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 10, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Amen. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Amen is right. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Coming soon to a millennial reign of Christ near you. Just, just can't wait. Um, let's see here. We're in Deuteronomy 12. It's verses 20 through 32. It's entitled, You Shall Not Add to It, Nor Take Away From It. So starting in verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, Let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat, you shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat." 
Observe and obey all of these words which I command you today that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods." Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Before I get into the sermon, I guess I should say this is that Doug in Ireland, okay, he does the paintings for us, a painting for every sermon, and uh, he uh, is having an anniversary Tuesday. And so we all want to wish him the best. He's a wonderful guy, and Doe is a wonderful girl. And so uh, happy anniversary to both of them. All right. The passage today can, if we will allow it, provide us with some hints into a particular theology that was introduced right in the first pages of the Bible. And that will continue to be built upon throughout much of the rest of the Bible. This is concerning the nature of the soul of man and how it comes into being. We'll see that as we go through the verses today. You might not think that the verses we just read would even hint at that, but they do. And they also give us insights into a ritual we perform each week before leaving the church, that of the Lord's Supper. To understand the importance of Jesus' words there, we need to understand the importance of his words in John 6. And to understand the reason for why he says what he says there, we need to understand precepts from all the way back here in the Law of Moses. And so, when you think, my mind is numbed over by all of this Old Testament stuff, you need to remember that without it, we wouldn't have an appreciation for or a right understanding of all of the stuff in the New Testament. It really is that simple. Our text verse comes from Luke 22. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Moses spoke about the importance of not eating blood in last week's passage. He's going to speak about the importance of not eating blood again today in even more detail. The precept predates the law of Moses, and it is dealt with intimately in the law, not just here in Deuteronomy 12. He is clear, no blood. And yet, in this passage from Luke, Jesus says that the cup we take is that of the new covenant in his blood. Maybe he was just making an analogy to the cup itself. No, Matthew is more specific when he quotes the Lord saying, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Matthew is speaking of the contents of the cup. We can ask ourselves if the contents are really his blood or not, but the words he uses concerning the bread and the wine answer the question. He also held up the bread and said, this is my body. It is as plain as the nose on one's face that he was holding bread and calling it his body. Thus, he is saying it is a metaphor for his body. Likewise, he was holding a cup of wine, demonstrating that it was a metaphor for his blood. The Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation fails because it fails to take the word of the Lord as intended, thus twisting the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper. But why did Jesus bring this up at all? 
What is it about the blood that is so important for us to know? We saw some of that in Leviticus 17. We saw some of it last week, and we will see a bit more of it in the passage today. God is revealing truth to us in such things. And so don't be overwhelmed with all of the laws as if that is all that the Lord is trying to convey. He is teaching us through the law of how we can more fully appreciate Jesus. In his coming, the law has met its purpose and it is fulfilled. In its fulfillment, it has met its end. This is the great part of being on this side of the cross. We can see what God was doing and why. And it is all about our Lord, Jesus Christ. Such great truths as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of two thoughts today is that it may go well with you. It's verses 20 through 27. Moses is now going to repeat and expand upon what he said in the previous passage, especially what was said in verses 15 through 18. And there is a good reason for this. Those verses said from Deuteronomy 12, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil or of the firstborn of your herd or your flock of any of your offerings which you vow, of your freewill offerings, or of the heave offering of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Verse 20, when the Lord your God enlarges your border, Ki yachriv Yehovah Elohecha et gebulecha. When enlarges Yehovah, your God, your border. It is in the second person singular, and this will continue until verse 32. Either Israel, the nation, as a collective whole is being addressed, or Moses is speaking to each person individually as if each person is an example of the whole. The idea of extending the borders is probably twofold here. First, it speaks of the initial conquest of Canaan. The people would move in and eventually spread out as the inhabitants were exterminated. It also certainly speaks of even extending beyond the borders of Canaan proper. The note of extending the borders of Canaan was first found in Exodus 34 when referring to the three annual pilgrim feasts. At that time, the Lord assured Israel that when they went to Jerusalem during those feasts, their homes and land would be secure. It was a note requiring the faith of the people. Obviously, if all of the people went to the place selected by the Lord to observe a week-long feast, it would seem to be the most propitious time for their enemies to come in and plunder the land. But the Lord's words to the people ensured them that it would not be so. They simply had to be obedient to the charge and respond in faith by coming as instructed. From Exodus 34, three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. The wording even indicates that the expansion of the borders would act as its own buffer for Israel, allowing them to attend these feasts without fear. With that understood, Moses says, verse 20 continues, as he promised you. Rather, it says, Ka'ashur de Lach as has spoken to you. 
This could be translated as promised, but it is to be considered a conditional promise if so. In Deuteronomy 11, it said, For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory." The people were told that keeping the commandments would lead to driving out the nations and eventual expansion of the borders. Regardless of this, though, the point of what is being conveyed here concerns the people's conduct while in the land, specifically in regard to the slaughter of animals for food. This is next scene. Verse 20 going on, and you say, let me eat meat because you long to eat meat. Now that sounds like me on any given night of the week, just so you know. (laughs) The Hebrew is more personal. And you say, let me eat meat because desires your soul to eat meat. There is the understanding that meat is something highly desired, even yearned after. But there is also the understanding that animals were generally considered first and foremost for sacrificial use. The common word for altar, such as in verse 12, 3, is mizbeach. And it even conveys this thought. It signifies a slaughter place coming from zabach, meaning to kill, offer, sacrifice, slay, and so on. That then is derived from a primitive root signifying to slaughter an animal. The very act of slaughtering an animal carried in the mind of the people the sense of a sacrifice. A sacrifice was something made on an altar. And the Lord wanted a single altar for the sacrifices and offerings presented to him. This then made the situation untenable, especially if the borders had been expanded. It would be unreasonable to make a journey of several days to simply have a meal consisting of meat. But it is understood that the soul of man craves after meat. As was seen in the previous sermon, while the people were camped around the tabernacle, they were required to bring any animal to be slaughtered before the Lord. We're going to read that again this week. Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He is shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as a peace offering to the Lord. However, once in the land, and especially where the tribes had taken over their inheritances that were long distances from the tabernacle, there needed to be provisions that allowed them to deviate from this previous requirement, thus allowing them to eat meat unhindered by an impossible mandate. Without Moses' words of this chapter, there would be confusion concerning what to do, especially when some of the animals they were allowed to eat, being considered clean according to the law, were also not animals acceptable for offering to the Lord. As we noted last week, only those animals that typologically looked forward to Christ could be offered on the altar to the Lord. So what are the people to do in order to not sin against the Lord based on what the law already says and based on what is already allowed to be eaten according to the Leviticus 11 dietary laws? 
The answer was partially stated in the previous verses, but it will be provided here with further detail. That begins with verse 20 going on, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. Moses tells the people that when they want meat, they can eat meat. The previous law was solely for the time in the wilderness. With the people dwelling in the land of Canaan, it would no longer apply. They would be spread out throughout the land and were allowed to freely do as they wished in this regard, as long as it conformed to the laws now set forth by Moses. Verse 21, if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you. What is too far? It doesn't say. It's like when somebody says a man isn't to have long hair. What is long hair? Guess what? The Bible doesn't say. So that causes a conundrum for legalists. Okay, you got to take the whole Bible in counsel. It doesn't say how far too far is, and thus it is a free allowance to do according to what is reasonable. When we read the Bible, we may think of Israel as a small piece of land where the people could easily go to whatever spot the Lord determined to place his name. However, there were no cars. Everything had to go on foot. Today, to travel to the next town, even 30 or 40 miles away, it would certainly seem unreasonable to start walking with your evening meal in order to first slaughter it there. It would even be true with a 10-mile walk. By the time you walked an animal 10 miles, offered it up, and then carried its meat back home, you would have to spend at least five or six hours and maybe more. In other words, what is being conveyed here is basically an allowance for any and all to conduct their affairs according to the permissible rules as they are set down. This is the standard, and only the exceptions, which are actually the main commandments, are to be exactingly carried out in accord with the law of the altar. What I mean is the firstborn and the tithes and all of the things that the law mandates. That is what that's speaking of. All right. This releases all of the people from the burdens that would otherwise be necessarily imposed on them for any and all consumption of animals. Verse 21 going on, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock. Here it uses the root of the word for altar, zabach, that was noted while looking at the last verse. It generally means to slaughter for sacrifice. However, here it simply speaks of slaughtering for food. The accommodation and allowance are granted according to the word, and it applies to both animals of the herd and of the flock. These are animals generally associated with those acceptable for sacrifice upon the altar of the Lord. And yet, they are authorized for general slaughter without any religious connotation assigned to them. If someone wanted T-bone steak for the evening, that is now made available to him. Verse 21 continues, which the Lord has given you. Oh, by the way, Hidako, T-bone sounds pretty good right now, just so you know. <laughs> Verse 21 going on, which the Lord has given you. Asher Natan Yehovah Lecha, which has given Yehovah you. This is the same basic thought from verse 12, 15 that said, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Moses is careful to acknowledge the Lord's hand as being the source of the possessions of the people. It is thus to be to them a reminder that not only is this allowance now being spoken of as a grant to the people, but the very animal itself is a blessing from the Lord. Therefore, they are to treat the command with respect. Verse 21 continues, just as I have commanded you. This refers to the words of the previous clause. Then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock, dot, 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 just as I have commanded you. The allowance is granted by the Lord through Moses, and it thus removes any difficulty from the otherwise undiscernible notion of what to do. 
if this provision were not made, it could be argued by the priests that every single such animal had to be brought to the tabernacle, regardless of the distance, and it would have to be slaughtered according to the temple rites. In this, there would have been obvious other difficulties, because the command from Leviticus 17 said that such animals were to be offered as peace offerings to the Lord. The laws of the peace offerings included the procedures for the sacrifice, removal of certain portions of the animal to be burnt on the altar, and so on. However, Leviticus 7, the peace offering of Thanksgiving, for example, included offering cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil, and leavened bread as well. Some of that was to be given to the priest. And along with that, the meat of the offering had to be eaten either on the same day it was offered, a Thanksgiving offering, or by the second day, a voluntary offering. And then there's the command that the breast and the right thigh of the offering were to belong to the priests who offered them. Because of all of this, the priest's job would never end. And yet, if Moses did not include this provision, this is what would be expected. But once in the land, the previous command was set aside, allowing for freedom concerning the matter. The animal could be slaughtered in whatever location the people lived. Verse 21 going on, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. The Hebrew reads, Bekol avat nafshecha, in all desire your soul. There is no limit placed upon the people and there is no burden concerning the matter any longer. It is a marvelous provision that, if overlooked, would have led to enormous confusion in the land. The animals of the flock and of the herd, with certain restrictions, were to be handled solely at the discretion of those who owned them. They were to be eaten, verse 22, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them, the unclean and the clean alike may eat them. The words here follow on after verse 12, 15, which said, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. As you can see, verse 12, 15 is in the opposite order of verse 22. A more literal comparison of the two would be, here's verse 22, indeed, just as are eaten the gazelle and the deer, so you may eat them, the unclean and the clean together, meaning in the same manner, may eat them. And then from verse 15, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, as the gazelle and as the deer. Through the repetition and through rearranging the wording, Moses is methodically eliminating any question of his intent. Nobody will be able to later question the law through some sort of manipulation of what he is saying. It is ingenious, folks. There is complete freedom in this regard concerning these animals, but with certain exceptions. Some were noted in the previous passage last week. They are now re-explained again here. The first of those exceptions is next stated. Verse 23, only be sure that you do not eat the blood. Rak chazek lebilti achol hadam. Only be firm to not eat the blood. This follows on after verse 16, expanding what was said there. However, there is a difference that conveys the meaning in a very strong manner. It says in verse 16, only the blood, not you, all, plural, shall eat. And then in verse 23, only be sure to not eat the blood. In verse 16, everything was in the singular except that one clause. There, it changed to the plural to highlight the importance of this. Moses highlights the matter again by skipping any pronoun. Thus, it is an all-encompassing prohibition. 
And further, he adamantly stresses the precept through the use of the words he has chosen. The reason for this is next explained. Here it is. Verse 23 continues, for the blood is the life. Ki hadam hu hanafesh. For the blood, it, the soul. This is what was briefly explained in the previous chapter. And it is what needs to be highlighted again here. The blood is the vehicle of life here called the nefesh or soul. For this reason, the Lord reserved all blood to himself. To eat the blood was to assimilate into oneself something which belonged to him alone. It was therefore idolatrous to use it in any other way than designated by him. Under certain circumstances, it could be used in the rites of the tabernacle as typologically anticipating Christ. Otherwise, it was to be poured out and covered over with earth. As the Bible says here that the blood is the soul, it gives us an insight into one of the doctrines of theology which is taught in Scripture. What is the soul, and where does it come from? There are several views on this, and this is the perfect time to learn them. Three basic views are, first, the pre-existence view. Of this view, there are two separate divisions. The first is the Platonic view, which says the soul was never created. The second is the Christian, or created, view. This says the soul was created from eternity. It always existed. Without going over all the details of it or the reasons why, it is a heretical view. The next is the creation view. This assumes God directly creates a new individual soul for everyone born into this world. The body is generated through the parents, but the soul is created by God. It says that the soul is created at the moment of conception. One reason for holding to this view is that all genetic information is present at conception. One reason why this view is wrong is that God completed his work of creation on day six. Another obvious reason for this is that the blood, which carries all the genetic information, is called the soul right in this verse. And then there is the Traducian view. This comes from the Latin word tradux, which means the branch of a vine. This says that each human being is a branch of both of the parents. Both soul and body are naturally generated by father and mother. There's abundant biblical evidence for this third view. Eve was made from Adam, not separately. There is the fact noted by Paul that both males and females come from a union of males and females. Eve is called the mother of all of the living. The Bible says that Adam had children in his image. Thus, natural generation is implied. The Greek word for flesh, sarks, can mean both a physical body and a whole person with a body. Acts chapter 17 says that all humans are derived from one man, meaning one blood. Hebrews says that Levi was in Abraham's loins, implying a physical transmission. In the Bible, the body in a womb is considered a person. Paul says that all men sin through one man, demonstrating that sin is transmitted by natural process, something that would not occur with a created soul. Does everybody get that one there? If he created a soul, it would be created sinless. Okay? David even says that man is conceived in sin. Then Jesus is said to come from the loins or body of David, demonstrating a genetic connection. And Paul says that humans are a soul-body unity. The soul is naked without the body. 
All of these and many other reasons from scripture and from simply thinking the matter through clearly demonstrate the importance of the precept once again being conveyed by Moses. As the blood is the soul, Moses therefore says, verse 23 going on, you may not eat the life with the meat. As mentioned last week in some detail, to really understand this more fully, the sermon on Leviticus 17 should be referred to. Blood is given for atonement, it is the soul of the being, and so on. The prohibition here looks to the work of Jesus Christ, and the precept was to never be violated. Because of this, Moses again repeats words from verse 16 saying, verse 24, you shall not eat it. Again, Moses repeats the prohibition, and it is said in another way for the third time. From verse 16, only the blood, not you, all, plural, shall eat. Verse 23, only be sure to not eat the blood. And then from verse 24, no, you, singular, shall eat it. There are no loopholes, there are no caveats, and the prohibition applies to each, to any, and to all. The blood is not to be eaten. The typology of Jesus Christ must never be marred. This is why when he came, he was able to say the following from John chapter 6. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The life is in the blood. To attempt to gain life through any blood except the blood of Jesus Christ is to mar the significance of what Christ Jesus did. In participating in the Lord's Supper, an obvious reference to his words in John chapter 6, we partake of the symbolism he speaks of. For any other blood, verse 24 going on, you shall pour it on the earth like water. It is word for word and letter for letter identical to the corresponding clause in verse 12, 16. If you missed the sermon last week, you'll have to go back and watch that. I was feeling really crummy the day I typed this sermon, and I was in no mood to help you out of that responsibility. Your job this afternoon, if you did not watch that sermon, is to go back and get the details from there. Okay? For now, Moses again says, verse 25, you shall not eat it. It is the exact same words that he just said to begin the previous verse. Verse 25 going on, that it may go well with you and your children after you. As with elsewhere, when Moses uses this expression, its meaning is to the end purpose that it may go well with you. In other words, there is the goal of things going well with you and your children after you. The way to achieve that goal is to do those things that you are being instructed to do. The implication is that in not doing what is instructed, things will not go well. What is anticipated will be withheld from the one who does such things. Charles Ellicott says, very possibly the physical as well as the moral effect of the rule is contemplated here. I would disagree with that. The precept is moral in nature. People all over the world, I know because I've been to countries where they do this, they drink blood and they live long lives. Those who get sick from it do so just like any other tainted food source. The precept here and the stress upon it is not for physical health, but for upholding the sacred moral nature of the typology that anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ. 
This is the importance of the precept, and this is the reason for the admonition concerning the good and purpose that comes. Verse 25 continues, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you do the right in eyes, Yehovah, the Lord is watching, and his eyes are on the precepts he sets forth. Due to this precept having been repeatedly stated, it is an admonition that in not following through with it, the Lord will be greatly displeased. Therefore, to simply do what is instructed is worthy and it is commendable. Despite the precept being thoroughly ingrained into the national psyche, Ezekiel 33 verse 25 shows that the people willingly violated it. In this, things did not go well with them because they had done what was detestable for them to do. For now, Moses returns to the general theme of the thought at hand, that of what to do with the animals owned by the people. He has given them allowances concerning slaughtering them within their own gates and not at the tabernacle. However, after citing the first exception, that of eating the blood, he now mentions the second exception. Verse 26, only the holy things which you have. The word is kodesh, signifying apartness or sacredness. Thus, they are holy things. These include sacrifices and offerings such as are noted in Leviticus 18, where it says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, Here, I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings, all the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering, and every sin offering, and every trespass offering which they render to me, shall be most holy for you and your sons. In a most holy place you shall eat it, every male shall eat it, it shall be holy to you. This also is yours, the heave offering of their gift. With all of the wave offerings of the children of Israel, I have given them to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. In other words, those animals prescribed by the law to be brought before the Lord. Among other things, these consisted of sacrifices, offerings, the firstborn, and the tithes of the animals. These were to be presented before the Lord and handled according to the law. They were not to be slaughtered within the gates of the people. Further, verse 26 going on, and your vowed offerings. The nadir is a promise or a thing promised. When an animal was vowed as an offering, it could not be slaughtered within the gates of the people. Like the holy things, they had to be presented to the Lord. As Moses next says, verse 26, you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. This means to where the tabernacle and later the temple were located. The idea, as noted last week, was to ensure oneness of the people in their religious life. In fact, between verse 5 and this verse, this phrase has been stated in one way or another six times. In bringing all of these there, it was to keep the people from sacrificing inappropriately in any way. The responsibility for these things belonged solely with the priests and solely at the place that the Lord chose. Verse 27, and you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. This is referring to the burnt offerings of Leviticus chapter 1. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. 
Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 27 continues, And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat. This is referring to the sacrifices that were to be eaten by the people after being presented to the priests for their handling of the animal and of the priest's reception of the holy parts dedicated to the Lord. For example, the tithed animals and the firstborn animals were sacrificed, but other than every third year, they were eaten by the people. In the third year, they were given away in their entirety. Such things were considered as law. The soul of the flesh is in the blood, and it is this then that makes atonement for you. Only through the precious crimson flood can you be cleansed, spotless, and new. There at the altar the blood is cast, and it is this sacrifice which will open the door. Through it is new life, gone is the past. Through that death comes life evermore. Be sure and know that there is but this one way. No other avenue can reconcile you to me. But in coming through my son, you start a new day, one which will continue unabated for all eternity. Our second thought today is take heed to yourself. It's verses 28 through 32. Verse 28, observe and obey all these words which I command you. These words now take the reader right back to verse 1 of this chapter. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. The command is to observe and to hear, meaning to hearken to everything contained in the chapter. It includes destroying the places where the inhabitants served their gods, destroying their altars, and so on. It also includes serving the Lord at the one place he would choose for his name and everything that has been associated with that. The entire chapter is given to ensure unity of worship by the people of Israel. In doing these things, Moses notes, verse 28 going on, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. He again uses the same words as before, indicating that there is an end purpose that will be met in observing and hearkening to what they are told. Things will go well with them as long as they do, emphasized by the words ad olam, or as far as the vanishing point. Olam signifies out of time or out of mind, and thus it is a point that vanishes into the past or into the future. As long as Israel did what was expected in the eyes of the Lord, things would continue to go well. Obviously, knowing the history of Israel, this does not mean forever. They failed to do what was right, and in turn, things didn't go well for them. Something more than the law is needed for them to come to such a state before the Lord. For now, Moses returns to the general thought found in verses 2 through 4, that of the conduct of the nations they were to dispossess. There he told them to destroy the means and modes of worship they employed, and to not serve the Lord in those ways. Now he says, verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. Here, the synergistic, meaning the working together relationship of the conquest is seen. Moses says, the Lord will cut off the nations. And yet he says, which you go to dispossess and you displace them. The two are working as one, but Israel cannot work alone. 
The idea is that Israel will dispossess them, but only because the Lord is there to cut them off from before Israel. But because it is said that the Lord will cut them off, it means that he is the source of their power. And their source of power is greater than the nations they will face and the gods those nations worshipped. Therefore, verse 30, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. Moses brings in a new word into scripture, nakash. It is a verb meaning to entrap with a noose or to catch by a snare. He is warning the people that, like an animal getting ensnared, so they will get ensnared if they are not diligent to pay heed. With this said, Moses goes on with the thought, verse 30 going on, after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, Moses is relaying to them the stupidity of such a thing, and thus the just nature of any punishment meted out on them for such a thing. The Lord cut the people off, Israel went in to dispossess them, and in fact displaced them, and yet the perverse question they may ask concerning their gods is, verse 30 continues, how did these nations serve their gods? This is speaking of finding out the manner in which their worship was conducted. Verse 31 will show that this is not speaking of serving other gods, but serving the Lord in the manner in which the other gods were served. In other words, it would be comparable to what Aaron did with the golden calf. He set up an idol and called it the Lord. Thus, he claimed to be worshiping the Lord in an unauthorized manner. Something similar is seen in 2 Kings chapter 17, where it says, And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there, let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Moses is telling Israel that this is not to be considered, and it is a trap that will bring harm, not the other way around. Because of this, they were not to say, verse 30 continues, I also will do likewise. The means and mode of worship for the Lord have been established through the law. To serve him as the nation served their gods would be an abomination to the Lord, and they were never to follow such practices. They were to stick to the rites and the rituals set forth before them in the law itself. To ensure this would be so, Moses warns them now in advance that no other path was to be considered. Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. This tells us that Moses was not speaking of worshiping the other gods, but of worshiping the Lord as the previous peoples worshiped their gods. It is the same idea as was seen at the beginning of the chapter. Moses instructed them to destroy all such items of worship. In conclusion, he said, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. The call here is for unity of worship towards the Lord. And the reason for this is, as always, we saw it last week, we're seeing it again right now, typology. The people were given unity of worship because it is unity of worship given by the Lord in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. The details anticipate him and his ministry. Only in Christ is God pleased with man's worship. And so Israel was to reflect on that, not in the law itself, but in the typology that it displayed. 
And so, until his coming, Israel was to worship in anticipation of his coming. Anything else was an abomination because it is a false manner of worship invented to serve a false god. Such as, verse 31 continues, for they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. This is how the nation served their gods at times, whether to Molech or other supposed gods. It eventually did become a practice of Israel. So vile is the practice that the Lord says that such a thing had never entered into his mind. From Jeremiah 32, and they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them. Yet they have not listened to receive instruction, but they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. For such sins, and because of the attitude of the people, there was eventually no remedy left. The Lord destroyed them, and they were exiled to Babylon. They failed to heed. But Moses ends the chapter as it began on a note that Israel must be careful to observe the statutes and the judgments set before them. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. In this clause alone, in today's passage, the words switch to the second person plural. Whatever I command you, all, you all are to be careful to observe it. This makes it absolutely certain that Moses penned this. Anyone else would have carefully followed in the singular, but Moses has revealed the word of the Lord, and it is conveyed to all of the people. They were to hear the word, and then they were to hearken unto it. Moses felt at liberty to speak to the individual, to speak to the nation, and to speak to all of the people at any given time in order for them to hopefully pay heed. And to finish off the verse and the chapter, he says, verse 32 finishes with, you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. This was conveyed to the people in verse 4-2. There he added in the reason for it, saying that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. In that verse, it was in the second person plural. Here, it is in the second person singular. Moses has conveyed the thought to all of the people, and he has conveyed it to each of the people. There is to be no tolerance in violating the precept at any time and by anyone. This is because it is impossible to keep the law when it has been altered. To add to it will violate it, and to take from it will violate it. With that understood, we can stand back before closing and know the same is true concerning the Word of God as a whole. Listen carefully, because people love to do this in churches all over the world all the time. To add to it is to add in what man has decided is right. And to take away from it is to determine that what God has decided is wrong. This cannot be tolerated. The word is a unified whole. Everything recorded in it is recorded for the people of God to know and to understand the mind of God and his intentions for his people even if all of it does not apply to whatever people at a particular time. In other words, the law of Moses is written for us in the church to understand what God has done in redemptive history. Without it, there would be a void in our understanding of his workings. And yet, the law of Moses does not apply to us today in any way, in any shape, or in any form. It is annulled through the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9. Go read them. It is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. Colossians 2.14, it is nailed 
to the cross. In this, we have entered a new dispensation, that of grace. We are to live according to the word of the Lord that applies to us at this time. To further understand this, the Synoptic Gospels were written to record Christ's life under the law and of his fulfillment of that law. In those books, he speaks to Israel under the law and, at times, in anticipation of the kingdom age promised to them. He's not speaking to the church in the Synoptic Gospels, and yet the information in the Synoptic Gospels is necessary for us to understand what he did, how it leads to us in the current dispensation, and what will happen to Israel in the future. As long as we keep our categorical boxes straight, our doctrine will be sound, and we will not make the major errors that so many make in their theology when they take these boxes and they mix them. We are not to add to the word, nor are we to take from it, but we are to also take it in its proper context at all times, not co-opting what belongs to others at other times in redemptive history. Today's passage is for our instruction in theology but it is not intended for application in our lives. And yet, it is intended for us to continually find hints of Jesus as we search it out. As long as we are doing that, we are in the sweet spot because he is the sweetest spot of all. He is our hope. He is our anticipation. He is the fulfillment of everything Moses spoke of. He is the release for Israel from their bondage, and he is the savior of both Jew and Gentile because of what he did under this impossible body of law. He is Jesus. Everybody here kind of got a picture of what we were talking about today. There was a ton of information in it. I understand that. Go back and read it 20 times and it'll sink in. I always tell people when you start coming to know Jesus, the best thing for you to do, you know Jesus and what he did, but you want to understand what he did, how it relates to you, go read the book of Romans eight or nine or ten times without stopping. Just read it through, read it through, and you will, it will help you process what is going on in Christianity. And then I say, if you want to understand what he did and how it pertains to what was, go read the book of Hebrews eight or nine or ten times in a row. Just read it through, and you will understand what he did in relation to that and why it's so relevant to us today. It's very important. If you want to understand how to keep away from legalism, go read the book of Galatians and just read it again and again and again. Okay, everything in the Bible has a purpose, and that purpose is to show us the marvelous workings of God in Jesus Christ. And all of this unity of worship that we're talking about here serves that one purpose. If they have an altar somewhere other than the tabernacle, that altar was not sanctioned by the Lord, and it does not picture Jesus. Now, they are given instructions in Exodus chapter 20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments for the earthen altar. Okay, if you're going to build an earthen altar, here's how you did, are to do it. And that's because it is to picture Christ in its construction. But all these things that these nations did were not in accord with what God wants us to see in Christ. And therefore, think of it now, you're seeing that typology, but it applies to you today. Because God says in his word through Paul that there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. And so if we have some other typology, we're not going through Christ. Everybody see that? It, it's a one-to-one -one ratio of what he is telling them and what he is telling us here in the New Testament. And that's why when you go to a Catholic church and they have a, an idol over there and you go bow down to it and you do your little thing and you say, Mary, whatever, I'm sorry, that is not authorized according to scripture and therefore it is anathema. This is why it's so important to understand what is going on in redemptive history. Everything, every single thing that you see in the Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ or what he has done or what he will do. Everything, 
Okay. And with that having been said, if you have never called on Jesus Christ, you cannot have fellowship with God because he is that point that's being pictured here and which is being revealed in the synoptic gospels, which speaks of him. Please just give your life to Christ. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Accept in your heart that God did send him to the grave. He died for your sins, that he was buried and that he was raised again. All right. If you accept that premise, if you call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. Okay. That's what I would ask of you today. Please do that. All right, we've got a closing verse for you here from 1 Timothy 3. It's verses 16 and 17, very pertinent to today's sermon. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Right there, that we've been getting instruction for the past hour, okay? In righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm so proud of people. Man, I didn't know that so many people were sitting here watching and talking with each other in the church. I'm so proud of the people that are willing to look through the law of Moses because it's neglected by so many or it's given in topical sermons, life application sermons that have nothing to do with the workings of what Moses is telling us. And when you see the workings, the blood is the soul. It suddenly takes on a whole new relevance. Our Translation doesn't say that, though. The way that it's read, you just kind of skip over it. But the blood is the soul. That's an important precept for you to remember because you're going to be given a question about it in just a second. Okay? (laughs) Next week, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. This is how you are to trod if you are a faithful son. It's entitled, You Shall Walk After the Lord Your God. Part 1. That'll be our 42nd Deuteronomy sermon. Okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I actually had a different question. I first was was thinking of a question for you, and it's all scratched out on the top of the thing because... I thought it's too easy and I'm not going to give it to you, but I'm going to ask it and you're not going to get a Maserati for this one, okay? I'm just going to ask. In the sermon I mentioned, and if anybody online gets it, quiz time they say, if anybody online gets it, just type it in and if you get it, then I'll give you a little high five, okay? In the sermon I mentioned that Paul indicates a soul without a body is naked. Where is that or what does that verse basically say? Anybody tell me? Soul without a body is naked. Anybody? get there well i'm gotta wait i'm sure there's a delay on this and if there is then uh uh, if anybody's typing in their computer you are not allowed to uh uh, i'm in the front row he's in the front row blood has a voice i nope that's not it it says in that's a good question though what it's uh two corinthians chapter five anybody yet in the bible for sure hey stefan's a smart guy all right two corinthians chapter five uh one through three hang on For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, the soul without a body is naked. 
Everybody got that? We want to be clothed. He's talking about people that have died and you want to be clothed in your permanent dwelling. Right now we have a soul and a body. Those that have died do not. They have a soul but no body. And we long to be clothed and not found naked, dead without the body. Roger Lynch. Okay, I like this. It's fun. Um, I could get addicted, so this is not going to happen again. I'm sorry. Um, Okay, I've got a real Maserati question for you here. Okay, and there's a couple left over there. If uh, somebody online gets it first, yeah, that one he said, um, uh, then uh, I'll send that to him. Okay, the Bible says that blood is given for atonement. It also says the blood is the soul. Where do you find both precepts, atonement and the pouring out of the soul, explicitly stated concerning Jesus in the Old Testament? I'm waiting because I know there's a delay. Nobody here's got, these are all very poor students of the Bible. I'm, okay, I say, that's right. You got to tell me where. Come on, you, hurry up there. They're laughing. Somebody's laughing at you all. Okay, hang on. Um, Isaiah 53. Ryan, you get it. I'm going to mail you. It's going to cost me like $20 to mail a toy to, what? Who said it? Did you say it before, Ryan? Well, no, I can't because he's in Canada. It's going to cost 20 bucks to send something to Canada. Ryan, you're just going to have to fly down here and get that, buddy. Um, okay. Um, all right. I, we got Jody and um, uh, Ryan in Canada. Got it. Here, I'm going to read this to you. And now think of what we read today and think exactly, exactly what this is speaking. I'm going to read you the whole thing because Isaiah 53 is just too beautiful to not pick apart. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Before I go on, I was watching one of the Praises to Israel songs on YouTube a couple nights ago while Hedika was cooking. And just one of the guys caught my eyes. He's a short little guy playing the guitar. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. And I was thinking, you know, if you saw that guy, would you think that's the Lord of creation or the guy next to him? You know what I mean? These people, he had no comeliness. Hang on. Uh, He was despising. We did not esteem him. Okay, they they had no idea. And without the doctrine, without the, the things that he did, you would have no idea. Okay? He was just a person. So when you look at other people in the congregation or out in the world, you think they are made in the image of God. Go tell them about Jesus or get them back on the right track. We're all just like he is. He's a human being, okay? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Think of the sacrificial animal. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. 
because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Here it is. When you make his soul, his blood, his soul, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. This is my blood in the new covenant. Okay, the soul is the, or the blood is the soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul, his blood unto death. The blood is the soul. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You and me. That's the marvel of the Lord of all creation. Okay, we got a poem for you. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. When the Lord your God enlarges your border, as he has promised you and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much as meat as your heart desires, so tasty and sweet. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, so you may do. Just as I have commanded you, as I did in part, and you may eat within your gates as much as desires your heart. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them without any haw or hem. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat, or between us there shall be strife. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you, and your children after you, when you what is right in the sight of the Lord do. Only the holy things which you have, and your vowed offerings, you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses, to where he gives his approval nod, and you shall eat your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat and enjoy the life upon the land that you trod. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God, failing his precepts never. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, bringing on them mayhem, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. It shall not be so, as I am conveying. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, raising his ire, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters to their gods in the fire." Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. To this you shall commit. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you 
for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to see these people online today and to share in real fellowship with them for the first time. And Lord, thank you for this congregation, whoever is willing to listen to these sermons about what is in your word in the details that they're given, and not just to superficially read it and to ignore it all the days of their life, but to apply it to their lives and to cherish it and to pursue it and to seek after it with their minds and with their meditation and talking to you about it and asking for clarity in it. Lord God, I'm so thankful for them, and I know that you are because they love your word and they cherish it. What a blessing it is to fellowship with people like this. Lord God, we ask that you bless uh, Andre and Lilia who left early to go back to Asheville and keep them safe on their drive back. And Lord, we certainly thank you for Doug and Doe who are having their anniversary this week. And we pray that they have many years of blissful love together until the day that you come for them, either in death or through the rapture. Whenever that is, I know that they will be content with the lives that they have been given. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful blessings of our lives and we thank you for all good things that you have given us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.